Welcome to the public morality. On February 24th, Russia launched a full-scale military assault on Ukraine, bombing several of its major cities. Western allies have been unified in its combination of Russian President Vladimir Putin imposing unprecedented economic sanctions. But will this be enough to deter the Russian president from his ultimate goal of destabilizing NATO? To begin this conversation, I'm joined by David Mayers. Mayers is a political science professor at Boston University. Professor David Mayers, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Uh, I, I want to begin this conversation with a two-part question. First, what uh, in this moving target called the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what were the issues that ultimately led to Russia's invasion? Uh, and, and can you explain, secondly, the impact this has on U.S. foreign policy? Yes, uh, Byron, the, the, these, of course, are, are the key questions. Um, it's not entirely clear to my mind, I suspect it's not clear to the minds of many people exactly what the Russian aims are. We have, of course, the public statements uh, given by Putin and other officials in uh, his administration, Lavrov, uh, the foreign minister as well. The aims, according to Russian officialdom, uh, are to uh, uh, eradicate um, what they have uh, designated or called uh, uh, a kind of neo-Nazi government uh, that, that has uh, pursued a kind of genocidal policy towards uh, Russian nationals in Ukraine. That is, of course, extreme language, horrid language. Putin has also referred to uh, the uh, the government in Kiev as, 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 as run by drug addicts and uh, thugs and villains of one kind or another. This is uh, language, of course, uh, meant to justify this uh, invasion. The invasion itself, as you well know, as all of your listeners know, uh, has been carried out uh, with uh, ruthlessness that is quite breathtaking. The Russian aims the more, the, uh, uh, to get to your question, Byron, what, what, what are the Russian aims? Uh, clearly, it is to uh, blunt or block uh, Ukraine's um, drifting further to the West, uh, towards the EU, towards NATO. Uh, if Ukraine became uh, fully integrated into the European Union, uh, or the NATO military alliance, this would, from a Russian point of view, very much shrink uh, the Russian world, um, making Russia uh, more isolated, more vulnerable, somehow smaller in the world than it is already. A great deal has been said also, of course, about uh, the eastward expansion of NATO post-Cold War, um, and from a Russian point of view, that uh, NATO ex uh, expansion, which has uh, included, of course, uh, integrating uh, uh, states that formerly were part of the Soviet-led Warsaw Pact, states also that have broken off from the former Soviet Union, notably the Baltic republics, they are now part of NATO. And that, of course, uh, is seen as uh, over the longer term, uh, a kind of a, kind of a threat uh, to to Russian uh, security. In, in Again, terms, yeah. go ahead, finish, please. No, sorry, Byron. Uh, go ahead. No, I was going to ask you the way you describe that. It almost sounds as if Putin, in, in a 21st century context, coupled with his inf misinformation campaigns is trying to uh, resurrect a 21st version, 21st century version of Stalin. Well, possibly of Stalin. Uh, certainly, I think what uh, 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 Putin would like to do is to uh, reconstitute Russia as a great power in the world. Um, 
the Soviet Union, of course, was a great power. Uh, uh, Tsarist Russia uh, in, in the 19th century uh, was a substantial power as well. Um, and to uh, reassemble Russian prestige, greatness, uh, role in the world, this is, uh, this is near and dear uh, uh, to Putin. Um, so yes, partly Stalinist, I suppose, but uh, uh, the main idea for Putin is to get uh, Russia uh, 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 back on sort of central stage uh, in international politics and to uh, enjoy respect and prestige uh, that he feels uh, was very much uh, diminished after the collapse of Soviet power in 1991. You know, I, I, when, I, when it's reported that Russian troops took control of Chernobyl, I mean, one couldn't help but reflect on the 1986 nuclear disaster. Um, is that, in your view, a legitimate concern or just hyperbole? Uh, 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 the Russian soldiers in Chernobyl, um, uh, this was extremely alarming. Um, I suppose if you were to make a case for the Russian soldiers, their takeover of, of, of the whole Chernobyl complex um, means that uh, it's not a target now. It's not a military target for Russian artillery or missiles or tanks or anything like that. The Russians uh, control that uh, very sensitive uh, and highly polluted uh, zone now. Uh, nevertheless, um, uh, that was a scary moment uh, and we can only pray that it resolves itself without uh, further contamination uh, to that already damaged part of Ukraine. Now, to, to, to many on the outside, myself included, uh, the history of invading Russia is one fraught with disaster. And that was before Russia became a nuclear superpower. Therefore, if, if for me, and I'm assuming many others, it's challenging to understand Putin's claims of national security as it relates to retaking Ukraine. How, how do you assess that? Well, again, um, from, from Putin's point of view, and it uh, is certainly exaggerated, but from his point of view, uh, and, and, there, and, and of course he does not exist in an intellectual or social vacuum, um, but from that point of view, uh, uh, Russia, uh, of course, uh, ha ha has been very uh, vulnerable and exposed on its Western frontier. France, under Napoleon, uh, in 1812, invaded Russia. Uh, in the First World War, uh, uh, Germany uh, uh, invaded Russia, um, uh, again, from the West. And most catastrophically, in 1941, in the Second World War, Again, there was an invasion of Russia from the West, from uh, Nazi Germany. Um, so uh, the Western frontier, uh, historically, from the 19th century uh, onward, especially, uh, has been a, a point of concern for Russian security thinkers, Putin included. Um, the... Again, uh, Byron, to return to an earlier point, uh, uh, the post-Cold War expansion of NATO um, uh, in, uh, 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 into the East, uh, touching on the Russian uh, frontier. Again, this conjured up for uh, people like Putin all kinds of anxieties uh, and uh, fears related to this historical experience of invasions of Russia launched from the West. Um, and of course, Ukraine, a kind of a, a border zone between uh, Russia and Central Europe, uh, could be from this hyper security uh, point of view, uh, seen as a kind of a, a springboard for, uh, again, more Western mischief aimed against Russia. Now, Ukraine uh, has, has no such intention of, of, of serving such a purpose, but again, from the um, 
hypersensitive viewpoint of 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 of, of Putin, uh, 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 Ukraine is it occupies a uh, a delicate zone in security thinking. But I think Byron, some of this is not only exaggerated from a military security point of view. It also should be uh, remembered that if Ukraine uh, be, becomes a uh, um, a component of, of, of the European Union, democratic, uh, highly prosperous, all of this will stand in stark contrast with uh, conditions in Russia. Russia, as you know, uh, in 2022 is a country in real trouble, demographically, economically. Uh, it is subject to various uh, social problems. Um, Russia doesn't produce anything. It doesn't manufacture anything that the world wants. There is no Russian high tech. Uh, there aren't Russian uh, uh, automobiles or uh, durable goods that the rest of the world wants. The only thing that Russia has for sale are natural resources. But Russia uh, is, not, is not a high-tech modern economy. Um, and at the same time, uh, it's a country where uh, rates of fertility, rates of, of, of morbidity and mortality are all going in the wrong direction. Um, a prosperous Ukraine in contrast with declining Russia is uh, not only an embarrassment for Putin, uh, it represents a longer term problem um, for Russia as a, as a coherent and vital society. Mm. You, know, you know, one of the things uh, that great powers share in their demise is sort of an overextension and a hubris. Um, and I'm and I'm thinking about the economic sanctions that have been in place on Russia, and have been um, in some words described as unprecedented. And some reports the Russian currency, the ruble, um, has already dropped by some 25 percent. So as you study the region, uh, this region of the world with a history more accustomed to authoritarian strongmen, though these sanctions may be economically punitive on the Russian people. Might they in some way work to Putin's advantage and that he can appeal to some sort of Russian nationalism portraying himself as a victim of Western imperialism? Well, Byron, I think he will certainly make that argument uh, that, uh, yes, once again, uh, 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 the West is going after uh, innocent Russia uh, and doing um, its uh, darndest to undermine Russia. Um, to weaken Russia. Uh, and there is, of course, in Russia, as there is uh, in any country, really, uh, a group of people, uh, sort of jingoists or national chauvinists, uh, who will rally around the flag uh, in a moment of emergency. Uh, and Putin will certainly do his best to count on those people to promote their uh, views uh, and to use them however he can. But Byron, at the same time, one thing that is so striking in Russia now, uh, and we've seen pictures of this uh, in St. Petersburg, Moscow, uh, and no doubt in other cities as well, there have been dissenters in large numbers taking to the streets, showing their dismay um, and their anger with their own government um, uh, as it wages uh, an unprovoked aggressive war against Ukraine. Uh, these, uh, so, uh, uh, Byron, of course, this is such a rapidly unfolding story and we hear one thing or another and it's hard to verify facts. But uh, I heard, I think just today, or I read maybe in the New York Times, that something like 6,500 dissenters on the streets have been taken into custody by the Russian police. Um, so Putin has, has lots of uh, 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 problems in Russia, domestic problems, and he has now added on to them uh, a, a small but uh, active 
and I suspect increasingly vociferous anti-war movement. Again, in the streets, St. Petersburg, Moscow, elsewhere. Take, take, take a moment on, on that note, uh, Professor Mayers, take, a, take, take, take a, a moment, if you would, to explain why the Russian people taking to the street in this moment is so significant historically, given Russia's history. Well, it is uh, significant. And of course, uh, this, this is not the first time that Russians have taken to the street. Um, again, just to, to remind your listeners of, of a bit of history here, that, uh, af after the uh, 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 Russians were defeated in the war against Japan uh, in 1905, there were large street protests and demonstrations. This provoked uh, in the czarist government a whole set of reforms. Um, and of course, the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution began with large numbers of disaffected people in the principal cities of, of the Russian Empire taking to the street. In more recent years, post-Soviet Union, there have been very brave dissenters. Alexei Navalny, for example, now in prison, enjoys uh, a fair degree of support among ordinary uh, Russians, among uh, intelligentsia in uh, Russia as well, uh, people who uh, are fed up uh, with, with, with uh, not just an autocratic regime, but one that has really become uh, despotic. I'm staying with the sanctions for a moment because uh, our, and this is my observation of American politics in 2022, is that I, in my view, are driven by immediate gratification. Um, sanctions are a, a apparatus not designed necessarily for immediate gratification, and it will have some. It may have some repercussions on American consumers. Maybe oil prices, for example. So, when you consider the complexity of the issue, are you worried that domestically that may appear those politically speaking um, seeking may may seek some sort of pain-free solution? to the crisis in the public discourse that is not only irrational, but may appeal to some portion of the electorate and sort of further dividing us in our stand against this Russian invasion. Well, I think your point is well taken about sanctions. Uh, they, they play a very uh, large symbolic role. Uh, it's a way to uh, register uh, anger, uh, with the policy of, a, of another country. Uh, and this is largely symbolic. And the, 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 the success or failure of the Ukrainians uh, will really depend on uh, material aid that the West uh, can provide uh, Ukraine. Um, at the same time though, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the scope of these sanctions uh, the intensity of these sanctions is really quite remarkable. Um, and if they stay in place, if they are further tightened, uh, they can inflict harm on, on, um, on uh, the Russian economy and Russia's ability to uh, continue this war against Ukraine. But Byron, your, your other point is, uh, this will have repercussions for Western consumers, uh, for, uh, for Western uh, reliance on uh, 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 Russian uh, energy supplies. This will very likely, these sanctions in place and as they tighten, this squeeze won't be felt only in Russia, but uh, uh, outside of Russia as well. But in Russia, uh, potentially uh, these these sanctions can be quite disruptive. Well, well, let me zero one more question around the sanctions. How, how might, do they, we have an idea of what Putin feels about the average, Amer about the average Russian, uh, but, but closer to home, what about the Russian oligarchs? Will these sanctions hurt them? 
Well, it will certainly uh, uh, hurt their ability to uh, 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 travel outside of Russia. Uh, uh, it, it can certainly squeeze their um, rather high, uh, uh, well-financed uh, way of, of living. Um, uh, yes, it will, um, it will have an effect on them. But Byron, none of that will be decisive. This will cause inconvenience. Um, uh, uh, it, it, it will be embarrassing uh, uh, for people, but um, the oligarchs are not likely to suffer a great deal. The people who will suffer in Russia uh, are ordinary people um, whose, um, uh, whose economy uh, and isolation uh, from the rest of the world uh, that will be uh, very disconcerting to those people. Uh, and they, Byron, will suffer. Uh, the oligarchs uh, will get by basically just fine. So I, I guess is, is the larger question, um, as, as we hear there, there are talks, uh, there are negotiations, I use, the, I use air quotes when I say that, with Russia. Uh, but is the larger question less about Putin and um, more about the West and, 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 and what price are democratic nations willing to pay to preserve democratic rule? Yes, well, uh, one of the things, of course, so remarkable about post-World War II Europe, and uh, this, this was true even during the um, anxious days of the Cold War, hot war did not erupt in Europe uh, for many decades. And uh, Europeans on both sides of, of uh, uh, the Iron Curtain, and then certainly after the Iron Curtain fell, uh, came to feel, I believe, that peace was normal, that uh, uh, large-scale warfare belonged to uh, the hideous past, but uh, did not really belong to the future. And people got used to a, a, a kind of a normality uh, along those lines. And now, of course, what we uh, see in Ukraine is all of that uh, confidence and that uh, assurance about increasingly prosperous and peaceful future, all of that has um, been blown apart by this invasion. Um, uh, and the democratic side of all of this thinking is now also under pressure uh, and people uh, recognize more vividly than they had before that um, democratic behavior, democratic institutions, democratic values, democratic assumptions can be assaulted vigorously by somebody like Putin. And, and, and I think we have to acknowledge that over the last, let's say the last decade, there has been a rise globally in authoritarian rule. Does this, this trend, which Putin is a part of, does this also embolden uh, Putin's actions, in your view? Uh, well, he certainly has... Uh, um... Uh, a number of like-minded uh, 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 regimes and people that he can uh, look to. And, uh, and uh, yes, uh, I think the democratic space in some ways has contracted in recent years. Uh, and uh, that has to be a source of some, not comfort exactly uh, for somebody like Putin, but uh, uh, encourages him to think, well, look here, uh, 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 the democratic world is on the defensive uh, and, and now is a chance for me to um, uh, pursue uh, policies that um, uh, others might not like, but they will simply have to learn to live with, something like that. And of course, uh, in China, he, he has, in fact, a uh, for the time being, this may change in future years, but for the time being, he has a de facto partner uh, in the Chinese government that is also uh, 
breathtakingly ruthless uh, in its treatment of uh, uh, dissenters, say in Hong Kong, or uh, ethnic um, uh, minorities, uh, the Uyghurs out in the western part of China, for example. Hmm. Now, I know for, for most of this conversation, you have been given the enviable task of, of speaking from what you perceive to be the, the lens of Vladimir Putin. So I'm going to give you one more question in that context. Does the previous administration, in your view, bear any responsibility for, for Putin's current actions? And I'm thinking about, I mean, Ukraine, aid for Ukraine was held hostage by political considerations um, uh, not too long ago. So uh, your thoughts on that? Byron, I think that, I think Donald Trump was Putin's poodle. Donald Trump, of course, said uh, terrible and reckless and irresponsible things about NATO. Uh, he never criticized uh, Putin or Putin's government. Yes, uh, to answer your question, I think um, Trump uh, lowered the American guard, lowered the Western guard uh, against Russia. Uh, and I think we are now paying the price. So... How do you think this is going to play out? <laughs> yeah, well, Byron, let me look into my crystal ball here. That's what I'm asking you to do. That's exactly what I'm asking you to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, Byron. Uh, look, there are various scenarios. Uh, and uh, uh, which scenario is uh, most plausible, of course, it's hard to say. One scenario is uh, the Russians will defeat Ukraine occupy Ukraine, install a government in uh, Lvov uh, that is sympathetic uh, uh, to Russia, you would have, in effect, a kind of uh, regime change in Ukraine, all to Russian advantage. A long-term Russian occupation of Ukraine, I think, would be, from, from a Russian standpoint, uh, extremely difficult. The Russians are uh, inflicting uh, 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 damage, not only property damage, but also uh, casualties on the, uh, on, uh, the Ukrainians. Um, and this very likely, over the long term, if the Russians occupy that country, will provoke uh, a kind of anti-Russian guerrilla resistance, very hard to subdue uh, and very costly from a Russian point of view. That is one scenario, Byron. Another scenario, of course, all wars come to an end. This war will come to an end uh, and there will be some sort of negotiations. Um, one scenario, I suppose, is that Russia would uh, keep parts of, of uh, Ukraine, for example, Donetsk or uh, Lusanka um, in the eastern part of Ukraine and just call it quits at that point and perhaps uh, in exchange for some sort of um, Ukrainian concession of those parts of the country to Russia, Ukraine could then uh, improve its relationship with the European Union. I think NATO uh, is not going to happen anytime soon for Ukraine, but a reasonable relationship with uh, the EU, uh, I suppose, might come about. But what we're witnessing now is so ghastly and so uh, breathtaking, it's hard to know uh, really what uh, ultimate settlement will be. Um, I think what is going to happen in the next few days, probably, around Kiev and uh, Kharkiv, this is going to be uh, dreadful. So I took from you, there's the Vichy option um, and the Sudetenland option. Those, these are not encouraging signs, sir. <laughs> no, no. Uh, and Byron, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't mean to sound so gloomy, but um, this is a very low moment that, uh, that we are now in. Yeah, a, a, a kind of a Vichy uh, uh, a regime in Ukraine is possible. Um, but if part of this sort of Vichy government in Ukraine was to include some sort of post-war reconstruction of Ukraine, I suppose from a material standpoint, uh, there would be some benefit. Although again, 
the profounder psychological and political and existential future of Ukraine in such a, such a situation is just too miserable to contemplate. Professor David Ayers, Boston University. Sir, I wanna thank you so much for joining me today on the public rally and giving us your wise, dispassionate and sobering counsel. <laughs> Byron, it, it was a great pleasure to be on your show and to meet you um, and thank you very, very much indeed. Stay tuned as I speak with Jessica Brand of the Brookings Institution. Welcome back. Continuing our conversation on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I'm joined by Jessica Brandt. Brandt is Policy Director, Artificial Intelligence Emerging Technology Initiative Fellow and Foreign Policy Fellow at the Center for Security, Strategy and Technology at the Brookings Institution. Jessica Brandt, welcome to the Public Morality. Thanks so much for having me. You recently stated on the Brookings site that for weeks the goal of Washington has been less about preventing Putin from invading Ukraine, but to employ a novel strategy in order to get ahead of Russian hybrid methods. Could you say more about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's been a, you know, a great strategy in the sense that it really shows that Western governments are increasingly appreciating that the information domain is a critical theater of war for this adversary. Um, and yeah, I think it's important, you know, as you mentioned, to note that, you know, the goal here was not to stop Putin. I think that was likely impossible, but to make it harder, um, you know, for him to justify his invasion with lies and easier for the United States to line up partners and allies um, and to build, you know, uh, respect. Uh, you know, support among publics, both here in the United States and in Europe for a sharper response. So, you know, I think um, on that side um, or on that account, you know, the, the strategy has succeeded. You also mentioned in that, in the booking site, uh, you talked about the next phase of the crisis. What do you envision that next phase to be? Yeah. Look, I think you're going to see Putin shift away from narratives, you know, seeking to fabricate a justification for intervening in Ukraine in the first place um, to trying to deflect blame or, you know, deny the existence of the kinds of, you know, violent incidents that I suspect we're going to you know, continue to see on the battlefield, um, because that's very much in keeping, um, you know, with with um, the Kremlin's, you know, long running information manipulation campaigns. So, you know, I think there's a bunch of things that Western governments can try to do to get ahead of that. And I, and I hope that they will. We had uh, Professor David uh, Mayers of Boston University on prior to you. And um, I asked him a question I, I think that, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to post to you as well. In some, in, in, in Putin world, I'll say it like that. Do the economic sanctions have a, uh, also have an inverse effect that it can embolden him to make him appear to be the victim, with at least to the Russian people? Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think he'll certainly try to, um, you know, paint the situation that way. There's no question about that. Um, but I think there's uh, mounting evidence that they're, you know, um, that the Russian public is not wholly behind um, this endeavor. I mean, I think the very surprising, I would say, images of, you know, protests in the streets, um, you know, and I, I think where people are putting themselves at, you know, at risk to express their views um, and, you know, reports of, um, you know, defection and even some like self-sabotage among Russian forces within, um, you know, who are who are fighting in Ukraine. I mean, I think it adds up to a picture um, you know, where Putin is a little bit vulnerable at home. I think, you know, I think it's a real vulnerability for him, um, you know, the extent to which, you know, the Russian people have been brought into a conflict that they, you know, don't seem to, you know, didn't seem to know about and don't seem to want. Um, and so I think, you know, to the extent that his misadventures are bringing economic pain, um, you know, to ordinary Russians, um, but yes, certainly I think he will try to, you know, again, uh, as in keeping, is in keeping with his tradition, cast, you know, the West as the aggressor here and, um, you know, as, and Russia as the victim. But I think, I don't know that those arguments will land, um, you know, when it's pretty clear, uh, you know, who, who is the aggressor here? I think even surprisingly, 
you know, to the Russian people. And I would say, you know, you asked about, you know, the U.S. uh, intelligence exposure campaign. And I think that's maybe one of the great victories of that campaign is that um, the fact that it is so clear, I think, um, uh, you know, among publics around the world, just who is the aggressor and and who is not. Because I think, you know, we know that Putin does, if we're getting in Putin's head, what we know Putin does is thrive on uncertainty and try to create uncertainty, doubt about the existence of the truth, doubt about, you know, it's the Kremlin's culpability for its actions. Um, and the exposure campaign has just made it really hard, um, you know, for, for the Kremlin to kind of whip up its narratives of deflection and, um, and self, uh, you know, sort of self-pity and, um, um, uh, you know, so that's that's how I see it. Now, now, for those historically speaking with any familiarity of the Cold War, they must find it it's almost startling that in 2022 we cannot state unequivocally. Now, certainly NATO's one thing, but we can't state unequivocally that America stands as one, united in what it perceives as Russian. Uh, aggression. How do you see that? I mean, I think it's been fascinating to watch the domestic politics play out here because in the early days you had, um, you know, former President uh, Trump and former Secretary of State Pompeo and Tucker Carlson on Fox News, you know, variously praising Putin um, and, you know, questioning why, um, you know, uh, why the administration is, yeah, I mean, there was a one segment that's sort of top of mind for me in which, you know, Putin says, well, like why, uh, Putin, excuse me, where um, Tucker says, you know, Tucker Carlson says, why, you know, it's not Putin who sent your jobs um, overseas or gave them to robots, like what's our beef with Putin? And so in those early days, you really saw, um, I think, you know, um, praise uh, for Russia's actions, you know, in, in, in a surprising way. Um, and um, and I think, you know, you know, not surprisingly, Russian state media just straight ran that, that Tucker Carlson segment. Um, uh, you know, so just an echoing of, of Kremlin talking points. Um, but I think that, you know, actually we may have turned a corner here. I mean, I think we've seen, you know, very senior Republican leaders, including those who have, you know, been historically aligned with President Trump come out and, you know, be very unequivocal in their support for Ukraine and be, um, you know, very full-throated um, in their interest in defending um, Ukraine and in de- defending democratic principles. So, I think it's early days. And as I, you know, I mean, the, the, the picture seems to be changing, um, you know, on a day by day basis. So who knows where, where it will land. But, um, you know, I had some, some worry, you know, that there would be domestic division, um, you know, over these issues and that the Kremlin might even try to, um, you know, whip that up and to try as it, as again, as it so often does to exacerbate divisions that already exist in our society and, you know, to make us more polarized and divided and distracted and kind of unable to push back on his misadventures in Ukraine because we're sort of caught up in our own, um, you know, in our own Michigas. Um, but I think, um, actually I've been surprised at the extent to which there actually has been bipartisan support for defending Ukraine. To, to that extent, um, uh, because you certainly alluded, um, uh, you referenced a, uh, a piece written by uh, Catherine Garcia, who made some of the points you just made. So is this just like extra, an extra gift for Putin's misinformation campaign when you have, you know, Tucker Carlson, former Secretary of State Pompeo, and even former President Trump saying things that sort of legitimize his efforts? Is that, is that even something he masterminds? Or that's just like gravy. Yeah, I think it's gravy. I mean, I think it's, um, I mean, maybe the greatest coup of Russia's longstanding disinformation um, campaigns in the United States is that um, it's sort of, you know, seeded a certain set of narratives and, um, you know, kind of in amplified a particular worldview and it's taken on a life of its own, right? So like Russia doesn't need to inject large quantities of troll farm content anymore to kind of upend our domestic politics with, um, you know, sort of partisan, um, 
paroxysms <laughs> um, over foreign policy issues because we're doing it to ourselves. And um, and I think that's sort of maybe especially the case um, on some you know narratives about Russia, right? The Ukraine did it conspiracy theory um, that would you know have pointed the finger at Ukraine for Russia's 2016 um, operation to interfere in our election. You know, it was a I think a pretty striking example, right? We know that um, you know government officials have said that that's a narrative that's been you know that was seeded by the Russian government, but it was picked up by domestic political figures here in the United States and spread across our information environment far beyond, you know, some memes on, on, on Facebook and Twitter, right? It was, you know, very much a narrative that, that, you know, government officials and very uh, prominent media figures, you know, were, were spreading across authoritative, you know, media channels. Um, I mean, which is to say, not that, not that those channels were, um, um, engaging in disinformation, but just that when you have very prominent individuals making these kinds of claims and remarks, um, or even saying, well, who knows what the truth is? I don't know. Was it Russia or was it Ukraine who's responsible for 2016, right? Like that sort of nihilism about the truth. That is, all of that is just such a gift um, to Putin. Um, it's it's just incredible. Uh, and we, we I, I, mean, I, would, I think it's important to add that the first impeachment of President Trump was related to the very issues you're talking about right now. Yes, of course. I mean, this is, you know, which is why it's so ironic to see, you know, many folks um, lining up in defense of Ukraine right now. Um, but I, you know, I'm thinking in particular of a tweet I saw by Nikki Haley this morning, um, you know, but she was a foreign policy aide to a president who got into trouble for, you know, threatening to withhold, um, you know, assistance to Ukraine so it could defend itself against Russia. <laughs> to that extent, not only that episode, but sort of the way it appeared that the former president, former President Trump, did not stand up to Putin. I'm, I'm thinking of the, the Trump relationship with Putin versus, say, the Obama relationship with Putin. Does President Trump, in, in, in his handling, I won't say he bears responsibility for what Putin did. That seems like a bridge too far. But does he bear responsibility in that to embolden Putin in doing what he's doing right now. Yeah, I mean, I would say Putin's responsible for what Putin has done, um, and that there, and that you know, responsibility for um, enabling this kind of action, or I guess maybe better put, creating the impression um, that you know uh, that the West would not um, push back in a an organized, concerted, sharp and effective manner really is, you know, is kind of widely spread. Yes, of course. I think there were, you know, many missteps during the Trump era in which, um, you know, Russia was not held fully to account um, for, you know, its intervention in 2016, among other, among other activities. Um, but I think, you know, um, that, Many Western political leaders um, for many years have had trouble lining up around, um, you know, uh, presenting the united response. Um, and I think that I, I, I say that, you know, really recognizing that this stuff is hard. You know, it's very hard. I think it took some time um, for analysts to really build kind of a coherent threat picture and to, you know, because what Russia does, is not just disinformation, it's cyber attacks, it's, you know, political and social subversion, you know, non-transparent donations to political parties, for example, in, you know, um, in Western countries. And they use these tools, you know, in combination with one another to, to interfere in democratic processes, um, you know, in democratic countries um, and in democratic institutions. And because this activity is kind of, it's gray zone activity, it's it's like sort of below the threshold, it's hard to see. Um, and it's happening in many places. It, it, I think it took a while to really understand the breadth um, with which, you know, Putin has undertaken these kinds of campaigns and then to learn some lessons about how to push back. Because, you know, in 2014, um, I think the U.S. government had, you know, pretty good information about what Putin was doing, but it wasn't sharing that government, that, you know, information um, with the public. Um, and, you know, I don't know how much it was sharing that information with allies, but we didn't see anything like what we saw now where, you know, uh, where Western governments really got ahead um, of and, and really, you know, made it hard for, for Putin to implement his plans and really shaped the narrative in the public mind about what's happening, right? That was a case where there was sort of lots of um, the kinds of uncertainty, the vacuum in which disinformation thrives. 
It's fascinating to hear you say that because if, if I walked into Brookings right now and I said to anyone, whether foreign policy or domestic policy, was there Russian misinformation impacting the United States? I'm, I'm pretty sure that I would get near unanimous affirmation that there was. Yes. Even now, if you walked on Capitol Hill and asked that question, I'm not sure you're going to get unanimous affirmation of, of my question. Why do you think that is? I mean, I think it's it's partisanship. It's political partisanship. And I think it's our greatest vulnerability because, you know, it's the partisanship is what provides the fodder, the narratives, um, you know, that that feed Putin's disinformation operations, right? What they what you know, what Putin does is, is to, you know, amplify the most sort of strident views on any side of a politically divisive issue, um, you know, not to advance one side or the other, but to, but to create the impression that we're, you know, more divided than we are, because, you know, the goal is to keep us, as I said, like, divided, distracted, unable to sort of keep a, or play a forward-leaning role in international politics in ways that would constrain, you know, Russia's interests. I think, you know, Putin also wants to dent the appeal of democracy. He wants to be able to say to, you know, would-be aspirants, uh, you know, to political freedoms at home, right? Like to advocates and human rights advocates at home, like, look, democracy doesn't look so good. It's, you know, it's, it's a mess. Do you really want that? Um, And so a variety of reasons why, you know, polarization is is a huge vulnerability for the United States. The other reason is that it really keeps us from doing what we need to do to close our vulnerabilities or for a long time, you know, for a long time it has. Um, I, you know, but I, I'm pleased by how I see Western governments performing in the context of this crisis. Now, this may sound callous, but are, are some, and it is the Republican Party right now, I'm, I don't mean that, I don't mean to be partisan here, but it is the Republican Party as I see it. Are some of the Republican Party, in your view, embracing a philosophy whereby uh, uh, the enemy, Vladimir Putin, of my enemy, President Biden, is my de facto friend? Look, I think, as I said, it's early days, right? I think that there were moments um, in the sort of early hours of this crisis where, where it did seem that, you know, there were politicians willing to score political points um, at the expense of of unity, and I think also some longstanding tenants in American foreign policy. Um, I, I do see the tide beginning to turn on that, and so I'm hopeful. Um, but you know, I think it re- juries out on where this will all land. I, I mean, I just remember, and I'm asking you this: I, I remember that would be the end of any elected official or any um, journalist. Um, if they saw, if they were seen in any way, not united in our opposition, you know, to the Soviet Union, this seems to be just a, a far cry from where we used to be. Not that where we used to be is necessarily the good old days. So there's some flaws in, in our Cold War policy, in my view, but this is a far reach from where we, from where we were circa 1990 when the, when, when right around the time the, the, the wall came down. I think that, um, we're in a very different place than we were in the Cold War on many fronts, um, you know, including I'm, you know, there's lots of questions about whether is this a new Cold War? Is that what we're, is that actually the dynamic that we're facing right now? Um, and I think, in, you know, in in some senses, there are, of course, there are echoes here, but the, the Cold War was a sort of global struggle around a coherent ideology. And I don't see in today's autocrats really that same kind of, um, ideological motivation. I mean, there's an ideological component because I think, you know, most of what I see Russia and I would add China um, to the bill, um, you know, most of what I see Russia and China doing um, in this space is trying to shore up their, you know, their power at home and make the world safe for their brand of illiberal government. And so, you know, to the extent that liberal governments and liberal governing institutions, you know, really constrain their interests or, you know, push back on, um, on their ability to project power or, you know, create risks for them at home. Um, you know, that, that there's an ideological thread there, but I don't think the primary motivation is, you know, to spread an ideology, but rather to stay in power, to survive and thrive and to make the world, you know, safe for their way of doing business. 
when you look at what's actually happening right now in Russia with the Russian people and the number of, of individuals that the Putin government has arrested, um, would you say Putin's larger misinformation campaign is easier to wage at home or abroad? Well, you know, look, I think Putin views information as a weapon to be wielded abroad and as something to be tightly controlled at home. Um, and I think, you know, he benefits from certain asymmetries um, because, you know, Western governments, liberal democratic governments are you know, constrained by certain norms, right? Like Putin faces almost no normative constraints um, on lying. And, um, you know, again, Western information environments are are open and pluralistic. And, you know, that is, I think, in the long run, very much a strength um, for democratic societies. But in the near term, it's a it's a vulnerability. And Putin understands that. And so, you know, he's proven very capable at weaponizing open information environments um, and weaponizing information um, to pursue his geopolitical goals. So he's done that, you know, abroad to great effect. Um, and yeah, I think you see, you know, increasing efforts to to Sensor information at home. I mean, watching it right now, right? Like Russia has really pushed back, <coughs> excuse me, on Western tech companies um, and platforms asking them to, you know, to remove content that is, you know, unflattering or, you know, not in keeping with Russian narratives around this crisis and this conflict. I mean, thus far, you know, the platforms have held firm and I'm glad they have. I hope they will continue to, but I would expect that that, you know, uh, again, that Putin will, you know, lean into that asymmetry and, and continue to press his hand there and ask, especially content in Russian language, um, you know, for that to be, for that to be removed, because again, the goal of these operations is very much about survival at home. And that's also why I think, you know, one thing the United States can do in this, in this next sort of phase of the conflict is really highlight and expose Russian losses and Russian, you know, the extent um, of the price that, you know, Russian soldiers and Russian society is paying in this crisis um, and in this conflict, because I think, again, those images of, you know, protests in St. Petersburg um, really suggest that there's an, there's a, there's an audience for that content in Russia. Jessica Brandt, Brookings Institution, thank you so much uh, for, for sharing your thoughts today on the public morality. Much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Rally at their studios. The Public Rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.